0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
1: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, alongside the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It is Jim Margulis, as we are recording this on Sunday, January 22nd, 2023. I make mention of that. We are recording this before the 49ers play against the Dallas Cowboys. And if you know, I am a 49ers fan. So yay. If the 49ers won, uh, if the 49ers lost, but regardless, I didn't want that game to impact the mood. Yeah.
2: I could see it being like, welcome to the Sox machine podcast. I'm Josh Nelson alongside my co-host, Jim Margulis. This is a podcast for Monday and... Why did they run the ball on third and eight? (laughs) Yeah,
1: I didn't want to impact the show, a show about the Chicago White Sox. I didn't want to do that. It's not fair. So uh, that's for different types of podcasts and and blogs out there. So we're going to focus on the White Sox here. And of course, being a White Sox podcast, uh, there are two things we're going to talk about in this particular episode. One, I went down the rabbit hole on Baseball Savant. And I found something that was very alarming in 2022 for the White Sox offense. But it is a tendency we are seeing across Major League Baseball and an area that the White Sox have to focus with the new hitting coaches to improve upon if we're going to see more runs in 2023. We're going to talk about those points later in the show. But ironically, we're going to talk about the Minnesota Twins in this episode first, Jim. As they and the Miami Marlins for weeks have been rumored to be linked up mm-hmm. in a possible trade for Pablo Lopez, a starting pitcher for the Miami Marlins. And the twins and Marlins finally made that trade in which the Minnesota twins are sending Luis Arise uh, notoriously a pain in the neck for the Chicago White Sox in his career to Miami. And in exchange, the Marlins are sending not just Pablo Lopez, but also a couple of prospects, including their best position player prospect to the Minnesota Twins. So that is the trade and it could have an impact in the American League Central. And if it has an impact in the American League Central, obviously it's got an impact on the Chicago White Sox. So Jim, what are your initial thoughts regarding this swap between the Minnesota Twins and the Miami Marlins?
2: my initial thought was a continuation of a theme we've talked about a couple times in the podcast and i mentioned on the site is how the twins and white Sox are in a similar place but they're going about sol- going about solving their problems in a in different ways different strategies that could be you know very Interesting to see at the end of the year, like how they compare or whether they make a difference at all. But you know, we mentioned with, you know, when they signed Carlos Correa that the the twins signed the difference maker. Uh, two years ago now, they've signed a difference maker or a guy who could theoretically make a difference, like a five to six win player, uh, all-star caliber up the middle. Um, will that make a difference? You know, last year it didn't, this year it could. Uh, maybe it doesn't, but like White Sox settled for Andrew Benintendi, who I think will be a good signing, but like he's more a complimentary player a more uh, a player who's going to be like maybe your fifth or sixth best hitter in a lineup and you know be an everyday player but not necessarily be somebody who changes the complexion of team the way he didn't do much for the big picture for the Royals. So in that case like you know interesting study in contrast. Same thing here, you know we heard about the White Sox, you know Rick Hahn saying that he thought the trade market would be more fruitful than free agency. That has not been the case so far and part of the reason why is because it was hard as he trades that did not subtract from the major league product, you know whether we're talking about trading Andrew Vaughn or Aloy Jimenez or a salary dump uh, involving you Makata for a very little, you know, everything, you know, aside from like trading Colson, Montgomery and, you know, Brian Ramos, which might be ill-advised for reasons, because like, if this year doesn't go well, they're going to need like a somebody on a Montgomery Ramos timeline to fit. So like, you know, in that case, it was hard to see trades being made that didn't affect the major league product. And here are the twins up and went and traded like a key player. Of their major league lineup for a key pitcher so they're subtracting from one and adding to another and you know we had the concerns with the white Sox whether it'd be robbing peter to pay paul and the uh the twins are going ahead and taking that risk and you know i think lopez is fine he's good like you know it definitely adds the rotation definitely is the 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 stablest arm in that rotation so you can see how he helps but you look at Arias; he uh led the team in plate appearances for a lineup that can be equally banged up so uh you know they're, they're trying to add to their stability rotation wise but are they subtracting from their stability in the lineup and will it wash out like that i don't know right now and i think reading through the twins reactions whether it's uh aaron gleeman or twins daily or the commenters on both i think the reaction is similarly mixed like some people thought they were selling high in Arias and that he might be limited by his first base mostly profile because his legs kind of hamper him from playing a reliable second base other people were saying like oh we've seen the twins trade for Sonny gray and trade for kenta maeda and, and these guys who are like you know good starters but have a flaw and you know lopez had a shoulder issue two years ago he kind of wore it down the second half last year just like we keep signing these three you know, wins above replacement starters, but they're not making the difference that you know, we need. Like when the White Sox went and traded for Lance Lynn and he provided that boost. And when the White Sox signed Dallas Keuchel that one year, and at least for the first year, he provided that boost. Like, yeah, you know, the twins set their sights lower and they've been getting lower. So yeah, that, that's kind of my first impression is uh, it's different, but also it, it's different between the White Sox and the twins, but also a continuation of what the twins have done. It hasn't yet been real fruitful from That perspective, as you were
1: talking about, like the Twins' perspective of losing Luis Arise and losing what we would think is going to be someone in the top three of their lineup, someone that's very effective in getting on base for the Minnesota Twins, but he does not hit for a lot of power. Now he goes to Miami, and the Marlins are expecting Luis Arise to be their leadoff hitter, and they're going to move Arise to second base. And what really surprised folks, and this is pertaining to those of great interest that play fantasy baseball, Jazz Chisholm is going to move from second base to center field for the Miami Marlins. So the Marlins outfield could be a configuration of Jorge Soler in left field, Jazz Chisholm in center field, and old friend Avasil Garcia out in right field. And a rise we know is limited defensively. He does not hit for a lot of pop. So I wasn't quite sure if that was really the direction the Miami Marlins needed to go because they are having a power problem, yet they also rank in the bottom five when it comes to on-base percentage. So a rise helps there. The part of the trade that doesn't make any sense to me, though, Jim, and where I think the Minnesota Twins end up eking out ahead right now, uh, acquiring Pablo Lopez, is also acquiring the prospects. Like, I'm not entirely sure why the Miami Marlins needed to send prospects in this particular deal. So I guess from that, you were mentioning the twins perspective and reading all the blogs and listening to the podcast, what's been talked about in Minneapolis. I think the twins actually came out ahead so far on paper because not only are they getting Pablo Lopez, but they're also getting a couple of interesting prospects, including the best position player prospect that the Marlins have at a 19 year old shortstop. So I thought they were pretty even, Arias and Lopez, and yet the Twins end up getting more out of this trade.
2: I I thought it was like, you know, fairly even. You know, I can see Arias having an edge because he has three years of team control and Lopez is a pitcher who had shoulder problems, you know, two years ago. So like, I can see there being like, you know needing a sweeten the pot a little bit i really didn't understand the trade from the marlin side for the reasons you mentioned like they already had a good second baseman are they making the outfield you know i know outfield's been a problem and so it's like a creative way to try to solve center field but like you know if he's not if he doesn't stick out there have they made their lineup you know overall worse and their big picture worse and uh yeah i agree when, when you include the prospects Included, I think the Twins come out ahead. I just think, you know, for this uh, attempt to try to win in the next year or two, I'm wondering if the Twins really added much. And I'm thinking, like, when it comes to the new schedule this year, the still imbalanced but more balanced schedule, you know, the White Sox play the Twins 13 times instead of 19. So six fewer games at six fewer chances, or not six fewer chances, but at least lowers their chances of seeing Lopez like four times in a year. So when it comes to the, you know, addition of a pitcher, even if he's right-handed and even if he's a right-handed pitcher is very good against right-handed batters, the way Lopez is and that kind of, you know, temporarily instilled concern in me like oh i get it you know this is really something that hampers the white Sox. like depending on how the series break down they may only see him twice you know versus ariah seeing him <laughs> every day and seeing him hit like you know nearly 500 with runners in scoring position against the white Sox as he did during his career so uh so it's uh you know a case where like when it comes to the division and when it comes to just these these key games that are now even more crucial in a way because know, yeah, i guess it depends on how you look at it like if it's going from 19 games to 13 maybe divisional advantages are less important or maybe they're more important because a team gets fewer chances over the course of a season to even it up and you know if, if you go uh like 10 and 3 you know over 13 games versus like having six extra chances to put a dent in that uh head-to-head record like it could be a case where like yeah it's uh uh, the White Sox might be able to dodge a pitcher easier than they are able to dodge somebody like Arias, uh, who always seem to come up uh, when the White Sox could use a strikeout. So um, that, that's why, like, I thought it was kind of meh to me. Like uh, also just the twins don't, you really have a track record of, of making uh you know, making good with these veteran starter acquisitions. Like Maeda was good, but also limited. Like Odorizzi, uh, also limited. Like he had trouble throwing beyond five innings. Like these guys that they acquire, they have a pitching plan for them. And I think Lopez is probably the sturdiest pitcher they've acquired yet, but still waiting to see like when these guys pay off before I really give them the benefit of the doubt. Just like I'm, you know, equally critical or, you know, I I guess uh, jaded when it comes to certain ways the White Sox have tried to solve positions and being like, eh, I don't think it's going to do it. Losing Luis
1: Arise, as you pointed out, has the biggest impact to the White Sox because they would have faced Arise more than 10 times this year. And you were right, Jim. Arise is going to have more impact against the White Sox than Pablo Lopez. But overall, Lopez does still help the Minnesota Twins this upcoming season. Mm -hmm. And thus, that has an impact on the Chicago White Sox and the American League Central Standings. Maybe not straight up, as you pointed to that, the White Sox may only face Lopez once or twice in the 2023 season, but looking at the Minnesota Twins rotation, it's all right-handed starters. And we know, and we're going to talk even more later in this show about the White Sox struggles against the right-handed pitchers uh, in major league baseball and the adjustments that they're hoping to make for this upcoming season and what we should be paying attention to to, to see if there's any immediate impact with the new hitting coaches, but the Twins rotation is Pablo Lopez, Sonny Gray, Joe Ryan, Tyler Molly, and Kent Maeda. A lot of people will say that doesn't impress me. It's a mat rotation, and maybe if the Twins had better pitching coaches, as far as a better pitching infrastructure, that's in flux uh, with their pitching coach leaving in the middle of last year. We talked quite a bit about that, where they they lost their pitching coach. It'll be interesting to see and how the Twins' pitching overall bounces back. But while some people will look at this rotation and not be impressed, I don't think it's a terrible starting rotation. And I think even if it's middle of the road, if you can keep these guys healthy, which I know is a huge if based on the pictures I just listed, all of these guys have had some injury history. As you pointed out, Lopez has had a shoulder problem within the last couple of years, even though he's 26 years old. It's not the best starting rotation in the American League Central but it's not the worst, and adding Lopez with Gray, Ryan, and Molly Ameida, and you could squint and you could see where, you know, this could be an above-average, sneaky, good rotation that maybe can go toe-to-toe with what the Guardians of the White Sox are out there. And that was not going to be the case before they acquired Lopez, Jim. I felt like the Twins were one starting pitching short to even be part of that conversation, but now they got that starting pitcher thanks to this trade.
2: Yeah, it, it's you know good on paper, like you said. I think it's just delicate, like you know you know uh, when it comes to uh, Molly, he had shoulder problems. Maeda's you know coming off Tommy John surgery. Ryan is one of those five inning guys who's trying to prove himself to beyond beyond five innings. Gray's had uh, you know availability issues, and then Lopez, good last year, just year before had rotator cuff uh, issues. So just you know something you don't, never want to put entirely behind you when it comes to a concerned amount of pitcher. And then behind them, they have like a decent cast of depth guys. Like I think the White Sox would be happy to have like Josh Winder and Bailey Ober and such as like in the Davis Martin role rather than Davis Martin and only Davis Martin like the White Sox have. But uh, just reading um, you know, the twins logs and, and analysis, like they were hoping, and, and not that they had like serious hopes, but like, you know, Carlos Rodon type, even last year when Rodon was willing to sign like a short deal, just that kind of impact where like, here's your strikeout guy, here's your possible no hitter guy uh, every time he takes the mound uh, versus somebody who's you know, maybe subject to contact or maybe you know, is good two times through, but third time through uh, needs a little bit of help. Um, Cause we've seen the twins like develop some bullpen arms, uh, but they've also had some bullpen gaps. And especially when they demand so much from their bullpen by having guys who uh, tire after five innings, like uh, th- that's why I think, you know, they're hoping for like a, a killer addition to the rotation. Whereas like Lopez is good, but not the great one that they hope could like, you know, balance if, you know, Molly gets hurt again or Maeda has a rocky return from Tommy John or, you know, Gray is kind of iffy the way he's been. So that, that's, I think, you know, Lopez is good by himself, just whether he can cover for another rotation spot that that's uncertain. I, I think that's where the question is. And, you know, did the twins get enough? From the pitcher they needed to add, I think, is a fair question, but uh, yeah, certainly the all right handed nature of their rotation uh doesn't bode well for the White Sox given what we've seen last year uh, or last couple of years and, and what they need to improve there. So they, you know, they could be ordinary and still pose the White Sox a whole bunch of problems head to head. So, yeah, you can't. Get too cocky. I'm more thinking about like when they're not facing the White Sox, what do they have? Because that was an issue for them, right? Uh, you know, uh, you know, when it comes to just facing the rest of baseball, you like your
1: chances if it's a Dylan Cease versus Pablo Lopez type of pitching matchup from a White Sox perspective or a Shane Bieber against Pablo Lopez matchup. If you are looking at it from a Cleveland Guardians, you make a good point, Jim. If the Minnesota Twins. They want to make it to the postseason this year. That is their goal. If they make it to the postseason, they do not have a very formidable top three in the starting rotation in that wildcard round. They just don't. And you are right. The, that rotation raises some serious questions of can they get through a lineup effectively three times through the order. They still might be missing that guy, and maybe they're hoping that they're still within the division race halfway through the season and someone becomes available in the trade market in July that they could acquire a frontline starter. But the Twins continue to pile up on number 3 and number 4 starting pitchers in their rotation. That is their entire rotation right now. We'll see and how it fares, but it got better adding Pablo Lopez? Is it better than what the White Sox and Guardians have? I don't think so. So when you look at the Twins on paper, Jim Moving Luisa rise to acquire Pablo Lopez, are the twins still behind the White Sox and Guardians on paper in the American League Central?
2: I think so, but you know, like we talked about, Cleveland's clear tier one and then the White Sox and twins are tier two, so not enough to where you can say, like, oh, they're uh, it's one, two, three Guardians, White Sox, twins, like in, in a way that's meaningful, kind of like when you talk about like top prospects and. You can argue about like who's the fourth best prospect versus the seventh best prospect and they might be interchangeable. They might all be like, you know, two and a half star prospects. Uh, That's kind of how I feel about the White Sox and twins. Like they just are flawed enough and the flaws are health based largely, which means like key players could be unavailable or in the White Sox case done as impact players. And so like, yeah, just. They no longer project the way they were supposed to i'm um, thinking like Moncada, grand all that 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 uh, uh you know th- those very delicate positions to where yeah it just um things could collapse same thing with like having buxton being such a key component for the twins entire offense and defense and lineup and the way they operate like if he's you know has you know knee problems and hip problems and whatever you know issues he has like does that prevent them from reaching anywhere close to their ceiling uh when it comes to offense and just position player productivity. So yeah, that's that's why I don't really have a, I think the White Sox are better, but not in a way that, you know, I'm gonna provide bulletin board material, I guess, like, unless you just blur me saying the White Sox are better, <laughs> you know, period. <laughs> uh, you know, if you blur me uncharitably, then yeah, it'll be a case where it, I just did. But now they feel relatively even like within a couple wins and the guardians are still the ones sitting pretty because they are the ones that, uh, you know, you can see underperformance as possible, but they also earned some benefit of the doubt with the way they played and the way they came together last year. Is it fair to say that the American
1: League Central has three teams that could be projected to be 500 or better, but they don't have a team that's going to be projected to have more than 88 wins in 2023?
2: Yeah, I think so. Just because at least when it comes to the Guardians, like I think, you know, with Kel Quantrill. He, got, he had like a surprisingly low uh projection when it comes to like what he offers uh you know the upcoming year. And I thought like he's a pretty good pitcher, and he's certainly the, the a guy the Guardians do well with. I think Tristan McKenzie is somebody who like is on the cusp of being a force and, and may have gotten through the worst of his career last year, uh and is now like looking on upside. So they have a couple of guys who can like really uh hammer their projections. But I think on the other side, you're just seeing like a lot of guys with short track records and not a lot of power on the uh, you know when you come to like sustainable production on the offensive side so i can see just nobody really aside from like jose ramirez uh on that side of the ball like really killing their projections enough to where they're like you're talking about like the blue jays or the uh or the astros like when it comes to like just you know four win player after four win player after four win player like I don't think they're quite there yet, so I can see them like stalling out like maybe 90 wins, but there there really isn't a Titan yet, I think, of the Central, which is good news uh, for everybody who's trying to win the division. But bad news, I think, for like, we want more respect thing because that will only be earned, I think, when it comes to October.
1: You are right. The American League Central is not going to gain any more respect until they win some playoff series. The Guardians have in the past. And they won a playoff series last year. And they took the Yankees to game five in the divisional series. They had a good postseason run last year. So I think they definitely earned some respect for, from teams outside of the American League Central. But overall, for the division, I agree with you, Jim. Uh, the American League Central is not getting a lot of respect coming to the 2023 season. And we'll see if anything changes once we get going. But spring training is going to be coming up here in a couple of weeks. So we're really going to be diving into where the White Sox can approve or areas that they have to approve if they're going to be better in 2023. And I went down the rabbit hole for one particular topic that I wanted to share after a quick word from our sponsors. We're going to be looking at... At fastball velocity from right handed pitchers on foreseen fastballs and how it's been changing and evolving in Major League Baseball and how it impacts the Chicago White Sox next on the Sox Machine podcast.
0: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data
1: Welcome back to the Sox Machine podcast. All right, fair warning. We are going into the weeds, folks. We are going to get nerdy. We're going to get into the data. We're going to talk some numbers. Because Jim, as I am as we are inching closer to the start of spring training, it just so happens that the start of spring training also coincides with college baseball opening day, which kicks off our Major League Baseball draft coverage on soxmachine.com. And one thing that's been changing, and I'm trying to be mindful of, is when we are giving scouting grades, we're reading scouting grades on potential pitchers, and when we talk about fastball velocity, what's 50 grade now, what's 60 grade, and try to compare that to the major league level. Because ultimately, when you are scouting any type of player, college, high school, international, you are trying to project a future grade for this particular player to convince your general manager and scouting directors that we should draft and sign this guy because I think they have the projection of being a 60 grade fastball. And what does that mean? So I looked into baseball savant and I wanted to see where we are as far as just overall baseball on fastball velocity, understanding that there is a difference between righties and lefties on average, right-handed pitchers throw the ball harder than left-handed pitchers And looking at fastball velocity and the data in baseball savant, this goes all the way back since 2008, Jim. From 2008 to 2022, spanning 15 seasons, in 2008, the average four-seam velocity from a right-handed pitcher was 92.4 miles per hour. Today, it's 94.3 miles per hour. And it has been picking up almost every single year. So pitchers in Major League Baseball are finding a way to get a couple more ticks on their fastball, especially for the righties on the four-seam fastball. And it is a little bit bizarre to say, well, the league average fastball is at 94 miles per hour, so now that is 50-grade when I started to cover our draft or start our draft coverage, it was like a mile per hour below. It was like 93-94 is 50 grade. Well, now it's like 94-95, to 95, and that could have a pretty significant difference in that particular pitcher, especially if they can maintain that type of velocity, not peak at it, and when they get to like the fourth or fifth inning in their starts, they're throwing like 91-92. So this, is, this data has been helpful, but this type of graph that – I'm displaying, especially on YouTube, and I'll share on the podcast page on socksmachine.com. is what led me down the rabbit hole. But before we get too far deep, the rabbit hole, and I just completely take over the show, Jim, Mm -hmm. what do you make of the average four-seam fastball velocity from right-handed pitchers? I know it's a 15-year span, which is like an eternity in Major League Baseball, but it has increased by two miles per hour since 2008.
2: No, I mean, it is an eternity, but also like these specific 15 years uh so much has been you know transformed when it comes to knowledge of pitching knowledge of biomechanics uh you had pitch fx you have driveline you have um you know, just the the you know, baseball savant coming in understanding just the the what pitches are most effective the whole fastball carry being quantified and being able to like understand like oh yeah high fastballs are the thing you know and uh you know hitters have taken a while to get on top of it or fight it off they're starting to do it more effectively now to where like now you're seeing two seamers come back but it was just more and more and more when it came to fastball velocity and fastball height and 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 getting that carry high in the zone so it makes sense that for these 15 years, given all of the advances and giving just the strategy paying off so well for high velocity fastballs, like, you know, above the, you know, basically above the belly button when it comes to hitters struggling to get their hands on top of it, that, yeah, it would be a point of emphasis. And finally, you know, so many facilities and pitching coaches and pitching labs, uh, schools, you know, institutions have so many ways to access that that uh, talent that may have been dormant a lot of pitchers over the previous decades, but just nobody knew how to reach. So there's that the one thing I'll have, you know, I'm kind of curious about watching baseball for the first month or so of this upcoming season is the pitch clock because we've also seen over this time, pitchers work slower and slower and slower and slower and really uh, dragging down the pace of the game in order to summon their 100% effort over and over again. And with the pitch clock there, Will modifications be made to where all of a sudden pitchers can't throw max effort? Will they be throwing max effort for shorter? Will they be throwing max effort just as often? It just turns out like they were just doing because they're comfortable, but it turns out they can throw uh, harder for just as long while pitching every fifteen to twenty seconds. Like uh, that's something I'm curious because like this has been a big reason why hitting has gotten harder why, sh- why strikeouts have gone up why the pace of the game has slowed and why there's just been less action in baseball entirely. So it is, uh, you know, everything makes sense here. And now I think uh, we're watching like the first of what might be like a protracted effort to try to combat the effects of fastball velocity, uh, whether it's fastball velocity itself, or, you know, they've talked about like lengthening the distance between the mound and home plate. Like that might be the next thing, just because this is not going to probably abate in any meaningful way. And there is a
1: difference between 93 and 94. And looking at Major League Baseball, for fastballs coming from right handed pitchers, the league hit against fastball velocities at 93 miles per hour or below from right handed pitchers on the four seam. They had 267 with a 355 on base percentage and slugged 473. That is a pretty impressive OPS. That's an 828 OPS. The league hit against four seam fastballs for right-handed pitcher, pitchers that were below 93 miles per hour. This is the type of line that I would love to send to Lucas Gilito. While you are in your pitching lab right now, you need to be mindful. This is how well the league hits fastball velocity from right-handed pitchers, 93 and below. So if you're at 91, 92, you really need to start heating that the league is timing this up really well. Beyond 94 miles per hour, the league is hitting 243, a 328 on base percentage and slugging just 404. That's a 722 OPS. That's that's more than a 100 OPS drop from 93 and below to 94 and above. For the Chicago White Sox in 2022, we know that they were a below league average offense. So it's not a surprise that they were below league average on fastballs for right-handed pitchers below 93 and above 94. But this is where I want to draw some attention to. Below 93 miles per hour, the White Sox as a team hit 250 with a 323 on base percentage and slugged 425. That's not horrendous. It could be better. But on fastballs above 94 miles per hour, they hit 235 with a 310 on base percentage and slugged just 331. And that is where I went head over heels down this rabbit hole at a rapid pace, Jim. That's a 641 team OPS on four-seam fastballs against right-handed pitchers at 94 miles per hour or above. So I broke it down individually, and I removed the players that are no longer with the White Sox. So just looking at the players in the active roster. So breaking it down individually... Jake Berger and Andrew Vaughn were the best White Sox hitters against righties, four-seam fastballs, 94 or better. And they hit velocity really well. Both Jake Berger and Andrew Vaughn had OPSs above 1,000, Jim, against Heat. Everybody else in the White Sox had an OPS below 700. And there are four <laughs> players that I want to call out. Gavin Sheets, Lurie Garcia, Yasmani Grandal, and Yohan Makata. The four left-handed bats, three of them are switch hitters, but the four left-handed bats the White Sox had, had an OPS below 600 against right-handed pitchers that threw harder than 94 miles per hour. Sheets had a 591 OPS. Lurie Garcia had a 533 OPS. Grandal had a 522 OPS. And Yohan Makata against fastballs of 94 or greater from right-handed pitchers, hit 121 with a 157 on base percentage and slugged 182. That is a 339 OPS against fastballs greater than 94 miles per hour from right-handed pitchers. Jim, red flags everywhere when you're looking at this particular type of chart. But especially for the White Sox left-handed hitters, are, are you surprised when you see these types of numbers? Does it match the eye test from what we saw last year?
2: Sure does, um, and I could leave it at that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> since I'll let you uh, take a breather here, uh, the thing that kind of jumped out to me, you know, besides you know these numbers that you point out, is like thinking about how poorly the White Sox fared early in games, and looking it up, they had the third lowest OPS in the American League against pitchers seeing them the first time, second oh. time through jumped up to sixth. So it seems like you know between. You know, whether it's premium stuff or just adjusting to a pitcher's best stuff early, like they did not have it. So it's a case of whether it's, you know, uh, you know not having the, you know, I guess, fastball grade bats uh, or just being poorly prepared against like a pitcher's best stuff and eventually getting around to the second time through. I think that's something we've heard a lot about from Pedro Grafal and from the White Sox new hitting infrastructure is just pregame preparation and you know better understanding what a pitcher's throwing and and getting less uh, uh or getting away from like what Aloy Jimenez has said about like, I just want to know what he throws and how hard he throws, and I'll figure it out. Like going, you know, making less about the hitters, eventually getting around to it once they see it a few times, or you know, go up and down the lineup and, and get scouting reports from uh the players as they come back to the dugout after an unsuccessful at bats and i think they're trying to give them tools to get more up to game speed uh earlier whether it's before the game with targeted you know i guess you know with batting practice from you know machines that simulate uh you know real major league stuff or whether it's just a more detailed analysis and visual evidence about what they're going to be facing but it does seem like you know if It's a case where, like, they do think Sheets and Grandall and Moncada can turn around a fastball. They might think it's more of a matter of letting them know when it's coming and, like, what it looks like when it's coming to have a better idea of, um, you know, or better ways to get around on that kind of velocity and do some damage on it. Like, it really does seem they're trying to uh, address it without actually swapping out too much talent, uh, whether that's because they believe in the talent. Or whether you know Rick Hahn has a limited toolkit and what talent he can bring in because of, you know, whether it's trade assets or uh, contract maximum set by Jerry Reinsdorf or just imagination on his part, like that remains to be seen.
1: And then looking at between 90 to 93 miles per hour from right-handed pitchers, the White Sox did a really good job. What's interesting is that Jake Berger and Andrew Vaughn fared worse against fastballs in this range. Then high velocity, that's a bit weird, but Luis Robert had an OPS over 1,000 against fastballs in this area. Gavin Sheets had an 880 OPS against fastballs in this velocity range. Aloy Jimenez had an 867 OPS. Even Sebi Zavala hit well against right-handed four-seamers with an 855 OPS between 90 to 93 miles per hour. So all of Major League Baseball, hitters hit very well against righties who throw four seamers that are 93 or below. So if you're a right-handed pitcher, you have to figure out a way to throw harder, or you got to change up your pitch mix. And the White Sox are right in line that they hit better as a team against right-handed starters that don't throw as hard. So breaking it down individually, here are the players that I'm a bit concerned about. One, Aloy Jimenez, looking at his individual career against 94 or faster fastballs from right-handed pitchers his rookie season he has 620 OPS in the short in 2020 season he had an OPS over a thousand hey he's making great progress he slugged 727 against fastballs at that velocity the last two years Loy has an OPS in the 500s he had a 566 OPS in 2021 against velocity and he had a 573 OPS last season and breaking down his swing, Jim, it's not a fast swing. There is quite the load up for Aloy Jimenez because there's so much power in that stroke. But it does make me wonder if this is going to be the early book against Aloy Jimenez, which hopefully he'll be finally healthy for opening day, that the Houston Astros are going to come at him with high velocity because for his career, he has not been a very good hitter especially against right-handed pitchers who throw faster than 94.
2: i think it also kind of dovetails a little bit with the lack of opposite field carry like for somebody like jimenez like his uh i think general approach could be to like let the things travel deep fastballs will go out to right field breaking balls will go out to left field maybe you can poke the occasional outside slider off the plate over the right field wall but you know, he probably designed his approach to do damage to all fields and like fastballs, you just kind of stick out the bat later and, and uh, you know, breaking balls, it meet the ball a little bit earlier in front of the plate, but he had a natural swing plane for everything uh, and it served him very well in the minors and in 2020. And then, you know, part of it's been injuries, but last year, I think like, you know, Andrew Vaughn had similar issues in, in terms of just his best contact right field dying on the warning track. Jimenez has a little more power than Vaughn to right field. So it's not as big of a problem, but I can see like just the fly balls he used to hit no longer being rewarded. So that was kind of my concern is not just, you know, the, um, you know, the, I, I guess the specific fastball velocity, but just having a way to pull more balls in the air, because when it comes to, the, you know, just redirecting uh, 97 mile per hour fastballs to right field, that does not, that is not rewarded the way it used to be.
1: And comparing what we hope Aloy Jimenez would be one of the elite power hitters in Major League Baseball, that was the hope when the White Sox acquired him, that he could challenge and be part of the home run race. Aaron Judge, the last three seasons, has an OPS above 1,200 against fastballs greater than 94 miles per hour from right-handed pitching. Now, yes, Yankee Stadium helps out Aaron Judge. But last year he had 337 with a 434 on base percentage. Aaron Judge slugged 783. And that was a pretty significant drop from the year before when Aaron Judge slugged 860 against these types of fastballs from right-handed pitching in 2021. And he slugged 900 in 2020. So the best power hitter from the right side in Aaron Judge finds a way to demolish fastballs at this type of velocity. And it is quite the difference between someone like Aaron Judge and Aloy Jimenez. So my hypothesis here, Jim, and my thinking is that if Aloy Jimenez wants to take that next step forward, if he wants to be considered one of the elite power hitters, like someone like Aaron Judge, this is an area that he has to improve upon in 2023. He's got to demonstrate he could hit better against heat especially from right-handed pitchers
2: yep yeah it's just uh th- that's why i keep thinking like game speed you know pitch speeds you know etc just trying to uh make it less casual of an affair for white sox hitters to eventually get around to what pitchers are throwing them like that's uh it's going to be very you know i guess satisfying and also frustrating if somehow pre-game preparation solves all this and then there's yoan Makata. Makata
1: in his career, when you break it down from his rookie year in 2017 to 2018, 2019, 2020, Yohan Makata approved as a left-handed hitter against 14 fastballs, 94 or greater, every single season. He had an OPS over 1,400 against these types of fastballs in 2020 while he was battling COVID. And he had an OPS over 900 in 2019 and 2018. Velocity did not give Yoan Makata trouble in his first four years of the major leagues. I pointed this out in 2021 that Velocity seemed to be getting the best of Yoan Makata, and it did as a left-handed hitter. He had only 185 with a 329 on base percentage and select 215 against righties, four fastballs at 94 or greater. That's a 544 OPS and it drops dramatically to 339 in 2022 and the number the pitch percentage of these types of fastballs when he's batting left handed is increasing every single year and it's with 16 percent of the pitches that he saw as a left-handed hitter were forcing fastballs from right handers that were traveling faster than 94 miles per hour so this is it continued to increase like we've seen that the fastball velocity is increasing across major league baseball and this is a concern, Jim, because I don't know how to explain this. I don't know how a hitter like Yohan Mikada, highly praised, highly thought of, improves every single year and shows elite skills against this particular pitch. And in the last two years, drives off the cliff and the car has exploded in the bottom of the ravine. I, I don't know... What happened where you have this dramatic drop off of more than a thousand points in o p s lost from two thousand twenty to two thousand twenty two
2: Well, I think the first thing to point to is Covid, just you know the way it seemed to take more out of him than you know other players, and you know that only goes so far. I can imagine some people are rolling their eyes and saying, like, how long are we going to hear about Covid and I'm only speaking for like. The initial drop off from 2020 to 2021 like that's a case where that seemed pretty clear like he you know we i remember him just looking exhausted after scoring from first in a single just like being completely gassed and like players looking out for him so it did seem to have like you know profound effects for him on that year uh for 2022 like seeing that you know drop further um you know, either becomes like less of an excuse or in a case where like, oh, is this like a real long-term concern? I think it's more than COVID. I think, you know, there are some leg issues that have been alluded to, like James Fegan had talked about it, like saying like he wasn't quite 100%, but like he's not going to talk about it much. And with the way how convoluted the White Sox injury reporting was last year, like he was a he was like a lesser case because he had Larry Garcia falling down and he had like uh Luis Robert swinging with the wrong hand on the bat. He had like so many cases of like, um, just, you know, excessive injury mismanagement to where like Moncada's bat looking slow and him, like always wincing like that kind of went undetected or, or less talked about because there are more severe cases being ignored in its stead. But it was, you know, we've talked about it before like with Moncada, like when he's whipping that bat through the zone and and you know pulling balls in the air and he does the thing where he you know, holds his helmet down because it wobbled too much from the the force he's generating on the torque of his swing like you know that that kind of bat speed hasn't been there and i think you know just pitchers are are poking that spot more and more and saying like can you hit it now can you hit it now can you hit it now and like some weeks look better and then you know then he drops off in his back where he was so it's a case where like, hopefully it's, you know, and I guess is hopefully relative by White Sox, you know, optimism is that like, yeah, you know, he was dealing with some kind of, you know, whether it's, you know, leg issues or core issues or something like that, that prevented him from firing the way that he showed the ability to fire the bat through the zone in the past and with better injury communication with new uh, with, with a new training staff, or at least like a new head of the training staff, um, and a way they're gonna be going about it. Um, you know, have hopefully better communication with the manager. You'll be seeing that, you know, more of those good weeks from Yuan Makata than bad weeks. It could also be a case where it's just like maybe he physically peaked early and now he's just somebody who's like a glove first, third baseman. Like both are in play here. Uh, the latter is obviously, you know, um, you know. A, a real concern a real bummer um yeah you know, especially if you know given what the white Sox are paying him and what they thought he would be providing to the core but i think everything's kind of on the table because the white Sox have been just so uniquely i, I maybe not uniquely bad in terms of how injured they are but just like how cluelessly they managed injuries last year to like you can't rule out anything when it comes to just like not knowing how, how badly Yohan Mancato was hurt because we saw players visibly hurt still starting uh you know Mancado might be better at hiding it or he always might always have that kind of uh, slightly miserable look to him even when things are going well you know he just kind of has a uh, a placid demeanor and a little bit of a hang dog face sometimes when he just like flies out you're like is he hurt or is he just kind of uh, is that just having unusual gates? Like there's there's a whole lot you can read into Yon Mancata that might be true or might be a little bit of a red herring, and the problem can be traced, you know, back to just the White Sox being colossally just incompetent when it comes to managing injuries and and talking through them with the players because of just how messed up the Tony Larusa situation was. The one thing that I I've heard early from Pedro Grafal is that he's hoping that Yohan
1: Makata can go back to being an 80 plus walk type of batter for the White Sox. And the only way that happens is if opposing pitchers are afraid to attack Yohan Makata. But based on the numbers that I'm presenting here from a right-handed pitching perspective, Mm -hmm. they have no reason to fear Yohan Makata. So I'm not even sure how he's going to be able to generate more walks unless things drastically change in the beginning part of the season. And you see more walks in like the middle third of the 2023 season where we start seeing him draw more walks because pitchers are not attacking him. But every right-handed pitcher that goes up against the White Sox should just be attacking you on Mikata. There, There is no fear right now, based on the data from the last two years that they should have going up against Yuan Makata. If you can muster a fastball 94 or greater, and that is a, Huge concern. So uh, I get where Pedro Grifol wants Yohan Makata to be, but that path, I'm just not seeing a clear path for Mankata. I think he needs to be quite aggressive at the beginning part of the season to identify and lock on when he's seen this type of velocity early in the at-bat to try to do some damage to generate that type of fear. And then maybe you see more walks as the league adjusts to him. But if he goes up there being passive... I don't know how these numbers get better against the fastball.
2: Well, part of the reason he drew 84 walks in 2021 is because he fouled off pitches. He might've been able to drive like that. That's also Good you know, point. Uh, it, like part of his walking was a useful byproduct of just not having the kind of bat speed he had the year before, or even like in, or I should say two years before because COVID, um, you know, was, you know. You know, in twenty twenty season was so short it's hard to uh you know really count that as like the the his you know premium effectiveness but when you go back to twenty nineteen his career a year like he only walked forty times but part of that you know the lack of walks was because he ended at bats earlier with convincing contact, like on the second or third pitch of a plate appearance. Whereas in you know 2021, like he was falling off that, that juicy second or third pitch. And all of a sudden, you know, he's going to uh six and seven pitches, maybe drawing a walk because like that earlier pitch wasn't in place. So yeah, when it comes to my I'm uncomfortable about using walks as like the defining metric because like he showed himself useful uh, at, you know, 1680 walks but he showed himself as best at 40 walks so um that's why I, i think it's really more a matter of like he's pretty easy to gauge with the eye test in terms of just what he's doing and how how happy you are with him. Like in 2021, he was fine because like he at least had doubles where he didn't have homers. Uh, and and he still ran the bases okay, even though he wasn't stealing bases. He had a 263 average as opposed to a 273 OBP in 2022. So, I mean, like that was a huge drop off even without like homers and like the really compelling stuff, uh, you know, the, the, the convincing loud contact, but yeah, it just, um, that, that, that uh, I did raise an eye at that comment about walks because we've seen, we've been through this and that might be a case where like, you know, we're more familiar with him in the day-to-day experience of watching you on Makata than he is to where like, you know, it, it makes sense. Like, yeah, draw 80 walks. That's great. But uh, we've seen him have his best season walking half that amount and would gladly take that guy again. So he might have to calibrate his expectations a little bit once, you know, living with him for a little bit and understanding like, Oh, this is uh you know when he's got everything firing, and when his barrel is where he needs it to be, like he won't get a chance to draw walks because he's getting those fastballs and he's and he's turning on them. That's that's hopefully the case we're in the conversation we're having. So moving over to Yasmani
1: Grandal, and for those that are on YouTube, I have the graphic up of his entire career against these types of fastballs. And with Grandal, just a couple of years ago, I mean, the White Sox did really well as a team in 2020 against right-handed 4 fastballs, and he had an OPS over 7.40 in 2021. Obviously, Grandal generated a lot of walks, not a very high batting average, and he slugged 3.68, but he wa- he had a 3.73 on-base percentage, and he had zero extra-base hits against right-handed pitchers that threw a four-seam fastball faster than 94 miles per hour in 2022. Can't have that in 2023, but unlike Moncada and Jimenez, Grandal is not in the prime years of his career, Jim. How concerned should we be that with all the injuries that he has encountered with the White Sox, and frankly, in his career, that this is a sign that the bat's slowing down?
2: Yeah, it's, you know, and also like knees and back <laughs> like just you know the, the conversation we just had about Mancata is is doubly applied to grandal because he's had two knee surgeries and he did have the back problem so that's just you know the inability to get the power from the base the inability to really uh you know have that kind of uh, rotational power through the zone like that's that's kind of all there and on the table and yeah, I, I'd be curious with this 2021 numbers, how that looked like before and after the surgery, because after the surgery, um, he was cranking out uh, the, the, the fastballs. He was really getting that lift and that uh, you know bat dropping power uh, that he did not have during that, the first couple months where he was getting all his value basically with walks. So I think it's pretty simple, like not only um, age and just the simple decline phase, but also just how healthy uh, is his engine? Uh, providing that that bat speed and you know there might be a little bit of a bounce back because again like he had documentable knee problems he had a really uh you can question how the white Sox handled his recovery because like he just kept playing and he kept saying he needed to play but did he keep needing to play like luis roberts said like he didn't want to take himself on lineup when he could only you know hold the bat with one hand like you know why did he get to say he could keep playing so I don't judge Grandal as being like the best judge of himself or like how quick he was or how close turning the corner was because we've seen players be delusional about this before. So you hope that having a whole regular offseason and whole um, regular spring training uh, is enough for him to gain some of it back to where like he's still not that peak form we saw and he shouldn't be his peak form. It's a four, it's a, it's a fourth year of a four year deal uh, for a catcher who's in his mid thirties. Like there should be some decline. You just hope it's not completely off the cliff. I and mean, he's just, you know, more of a 100 game catcher or a 90 game catcher who can do okay versus a 120, 130 game catcher that the White Sox signed, you know, for the first couple of years of that deal. So I know this has been pretty dour of a topic,
1: but I want to bring a ray of light to this particular situation. And that is the new guy, Andrew Benatendi. Because Andrew Benatendi is really good against right-handed pitchers that throw heat. Against right-handed pitchers in 2022 that threw a four-seam fastball greater than 94 miles per hour, Andrew Benatendi hit 338 with a 436 on base percentage and slugged 477. That is a .913 OPS. For Ben against right-handed pitchers in this particular category, he would have been right behind Andrew Vaughn and Jake Berger. He would have been by far easily the best left-handed hitter the White Sox would have had against right-handed pitchers in this particular fastball velocity. And he had an OPS above 800 in 2021. He had 823 OPS. In 2018 and 890, in his rookie year and second year, he had an OPS above 1,000 against this type of velocity, so he has proven in his career that velocity from right-handed pitchers does not bother him like it does with Yohan Makata the last two years, what we saw a little bit from Yasmani Grandal, not a little bit, a lot of bit from Yasmani Grandal last year and Gavin Sheets not even bothering mustering an OPS over 600, and let's not even talk about Lurie Garcia. This is another area that we've we've identified the positives of an, the White Sox signing Andrew Benatendi. Here is one specific detail that Andrew Benatendi could really help the White Sox, Jim, and it may be noticeable right away, is that he's going to be the left-handed hitter that handles velocity Whereas Makata and Grandal and Sheets, they've been struggling in this area.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, the, the more we talk about Benintendi, the more, you know, it makes sense. Uh, just whether it's a general overview, left-handed hitter who can play a, you know, average or better left field. You wish it were right field, but it's left field and that can still help because that provides a trickle down for, you know, getting Andrew Vaughn out of there and one less player who or, or one more player stands between a corner outfield spot and regular playing time in the outfield for Gavin sheets and so forth. But yeah, now, now we're seeing it with the ability to, uh, you know, shape his contact as we've seen from you know, articles and fan graphs talking about, like how he's had the ability to, uh, you know, pull the ball more when pulling is rewarded and hitting fly balls more, uh, when that's a better idea versus playing in the, big parks or like the, the case like Fenway big alleys uh Kaufman huge all around like where are the case where like eh, am I gonna chase 20 homers at the expense of everything else so no I'm gonna get my on-base percentage up and be useful that way and but then we went to the Yankees started pulling the ball more in the air so we've seen him shape his contact now as you mentioned this like yeah fills a hole where the White Sox were deficient so yeah it's it's Uh, The more we talk about Andrew Benintendi, the more I'm excited for him. Like I still like wish the White Sox would have signed somebody with like a little bit more top of the line power, a little bit more projectability for being like an all-star and a difference maker, just to ward against like another short season for Aloy Jimenez or Luis Robert or Juan Makata perhaps being done. Like uh, yeah, or Tim Anderson uh, struggling to play more than 120 games. Like I wish they did more for that. But in terms of like finding an outfielder who addresses a lot of their needs, like he doesn't have 20 home run power yet. Like he might you know, if he hits enough of his good fly balls at guaranteed right field, he might. But just, you know, you don't necessarily feel comfortable penciling him for 20 plus homers. That's really the only way uh, he comes up short. Everything else is like plus or in some cases double plus when you consider who he's replacing.
1: I'm going to point out, and something I'm going to be watching all season, is how Andrew Vaughn hits against sliders, against right-handed pitching. But he does excel against right-handed pitchers that throw hard. And the numbers back it up. And even the scouting, when I watched him in college, my draft reports back in 2019 on Sox Machine, on Andrew Vaughn, I raised the question, why would anyone throw a fastball at Andrew Vaughn? It makes me wonder, and we'll end the show on this particular question, Jim, with how well Ben handles this type of heat and Tim Anderson in his career against righties is an 807 OPS hitter against four seam fastballs greater than 94 miles per hour that I'm wondering when you look at this type of data on a granular level and you try to chart out a lineup, if you are going up against a Garrett Cole, do you go Anderson, Ben and Vaughn? Because those are your three best hitters against fastball velocity. And they give you the best chance to make an immediate impact on the game.
2: I think even separating it from like a Garrett Cole type himself, but I think it's going to be Anderson and Benintendi naturally. Like it makes a lot of sense. uh, You know, righty lefty uh, on base and speed, like no base cloggers there, you know, being able to score from first and a double being able to score from second on a single being able to steal the occasional base. Like it makes sense either way. But yeah, when it comes to Vaughn, like I think when you talk about, you know, the, uh, my favorite topic of fulcrums and figuring out like, who's going to be somebody who tips this lineup from like, okay, or uneven or like, you know, unwatchable to watchable. I think Vaughn's going to have a lot to say about that. Like probably, you know, Jimenez is the most important player, overall because of just his top end power and silver slugger capabilities in the outfield, like providing that kind of you know 30 homer, 100 RBI type, like Vaughn can't quite be counted upon for that. But after Jimenez, like I'm thinking like Vaughn is probably, he has the most room to explore between what he's shown so far and his ceiling. Uh, you know, at least has had a ceiling. We just don't know what a ceiling is anymore. It might be permanently lowered. You know, it might be a drop ceiling now uh, compared to what it was before. Uh, but like with Vaughn, like theoretically, given how little development he's had, how uh, he's been asked to do so much beyond his skill sets for a major league team, uh, despite that lack of, uh, of polish in the minors, like. You know he's been surviving can he actually thrive like and, and what would thriving look like in that case like if thriving is hitting right-handed uh pitching well and even like good right-handed velocity well and if there's a way for him to either get more out of opposite field contact you know whether the ball responds a little bit differently this year or whether he and the white Sox two and a half hitting coaches can get more out of a hitter to the pole field um you know I'm curious to see what his next evolution looks like, because like, you know, he should be better than what he's shown. He should draw draw more walks than what he's drawn. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot missing in Vaughn's profile uh, that could be there. That isn't, doesn't seem like it's asking too much from him, assuming the White Sox stop asking for the impossible from him, <laughs> which is playing an adequate left field, uh, which theoretically I've stopped doing. Like, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's so much, we don't know about Andrew Vaughn because they've clouded the picture so much unnecessarily by forcing him in the positions he shouldn't be in. So fingers crossed uh, they have a better plan for Andrew Vaughn versus like help us survive in this position we did not plan well enough for. Well, thank
1: you for everyone entertaining me doing this data dump and going down this rabbit hole. I think this is a good example of where we as far as analyzing Major League Baseball and even teams themselves, like the new coaching staff and even the new analytics guys the White Sox are bringing, bringing in. Look at this data, bring it to you in Glendale, and when everybody's in the batting cage, this is what you need to focus on. This is a hole in your game, Aloy. This is a hole in your game, Yoan. Yaz, you got to prove that the bat speed's not dead, bud. Like, in Glendale, get the pitching machine up and start swinging against 95 or faster because if you continue to struggle like this and as I mentioned at the very beginning going down the rabbit hole pitchers especially righties are finding ways to throw harder and they're throwing more sliders now they're decreasing the volume of four seamers they're, they're throwing the four seamer harder Jim but they're throwing it fewer And in exchange of the four-seam fastball, right-handed pitchers are throwing more sliders. So that's obviously another factor that impacts batters going into the 2023 season. But if you can't hit heat, that makes it so much easier for Major League pitchers to get you out. You got to eliminate one of those two, be able to hit heat or be able to hit spin. And if you can't hit heat, it's going to
2: be a long season to, to go back to the idea of like optimizing fastballs. It's another thing. Like the fastball is no longer a setup pitch. It's a damage pitch. Like it's a pitch to get guys out on whether it's pop-ups, mm-hmm. whether it's strikeouts, swings and misses pitching backwards, et cetera. It's no longer fastball, fastball slider. It's slider, slider, fastball, slider, fastball, like depending on what a hitter can handle. Like there's no, the, the old order and and, and natural conventional wisdom of uh pitch mixes is kind of out the window, especially if pitchers can throw well enough and throw strikes at any time. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a new world. I'm hoping the pitch clock takes a little bit out of it just to kind of like tennis, how they had to soften the rackets a little bit when servers were getting up to like 135 miles per hour. And it's basically like serve weak response smash, like, you know, that that got unwatchable. Like I think they're you know, we've seen other sports have to take a little bit of speed out of the game and it might have to be softened here somewhat. Uh, But, You know, if we can't count on fastballs being diminished really any, then yeah, as you mentioned, like pitching machines need to be 117 miles per hour from 38 feet in in Camelback Ranch and uh, hopefully everything else (laughs) looks slower. You know, I love to see that. I would love to see that
1: in person. Just. <laughs> 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 can't even can't even get a thought process in. don't, don't, don't even know how to attack that type of pitch and velocity but that would be hilarious but thank you podcast listeners and for those that watched the video on youtube for entertaining me going down this rabbit hole i thought it was pretty interesting looking at the type of data from the last 15 years and how fastball velocity is increasing and this obviously influences every level of of baseball, high school, college, junior college, minor leagues and of course major league baseball. If you're a right-handed pitcher, velocity is king right now, especially increasing velocity in the four seam fastball and of course for hitters trying to find ways to increase your exit velocity on pitches. And I just thought it was a uh, I thought it was pretty interesting data. So Jim, thank you so much for entertaining me and going walking down this rabbit hole.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. And I hope for the listeners that I was your advocate. (laughs) That will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank
1: you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. We do put up the podcast, the full episodes on our YouTube page at YouTube.com slash socksmachine. We're inching closer to a thousand subscribers. So if you do enjoy watching videos on YouTube, we'll produce more videos during the regular season, of course. Subscribe to our YouTube channel to get the latest notifications when there's new video at YouTube.com/slash socksmachine. And you can follow us on Twitter, we're at socksmachine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. If you enjoy our work and you want more, you can get more at patreon.com slash socks machine. Our Patreon supporters get exclusive content like the P.O. Socks mailbag where Jim answered a lot of people's questions last week on socksmachine.com. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website. And when we have new Socks Machine swag, they're the first ones to receive it in our new Socks Machine store. We have monthly plans starting at $2 or you can save with an annual subscription. Again, you can sign up at patreon.com slash socks machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your own for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching.